Alright, so episode three of the Throws Chat Podcast, we have Justin Rohde, national champ at Mountain Union, 2012 Olympian, and owner of Rohde Sport, and inventor of the Rohde Sport Shop Glove. Thanks for coming, Justin. Mm, thank you, Martin. I'm glad to be here. So, Justin, you're now working with Rohde Sport. You work with several athletes, um, not only in the U.S., but around the world right now. Uh, you're a professional coach. You know, coming from Mountain Union as a D3 athlete, you actually went on to become a professional um, shot putter for the country of Canada. You know, what was, what was that time like trying to transition from being a D3 athlete living in Ohio your entire life to moving out to Kamloops, British Columbia and working with possibly the most renowned throws coach in history in Dr. Bonnerchuk? Uh, how's that time like for you? Well, the story starts probably my junior year in college where I had uh, I had outgrown the coaching knowledge at my school, which, you know, maybe not be so surprising at most D3 institutions. Now, I still had excellent coaches, but just in terms of specific event knowledge, I was seeking out my own. Uh, the uh, uh, NTCA conventions in Columbus, Ohio, um, in those years, 2005 to 2006, were uh, instrumental in me seeing a world outside of my uh, high school and college life. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of people don't understand if you're in the grassroots of throwing, how much is beyond college um, and what people, how special and how intelligent some of the top minds are in the sport. Um, and so in, in my junior year at Mount, I, I was running out of inspiration and by the time I got to my senior year I knew I was done with college I had I had grown as much as I was going to there and when I went home that summer it also extended into my home I had outgrown Northeast Ohio and I knew that something in me something about my mind and my development I had to leave I didn't know where I didn't know what that was going to look like um, now, I had a great friend of mine, Norm Zelstra. Uh, he was the throws coach at Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And they had lined up uh, Dr. Bondarchuk as a presenter uh, that summer, 2007, right after I graduated. So, uh, so I did my national championship. Then it was maybe four or six weeks after that. And I went to Grand Rapids. And um, Dr. Bondarchuk did throws coach sessions and he did lectures. And when I was, when we were doing the throw sessions, uh, there were probably 20, 20 discus hammer people in the cage, and I was the only shot putter there. And the, at Grand Rat, at uh, Calvin College, the circles are right next to each other. And he stood between the two, and he would coach one of the hammer disc people, and then he'd turn around and he'd coach one of my throws, and back and forth, back and forth. And he did this for two days straight, and to where I was getting 50% of his time, and within five minutes, with his broken English cues, I felt forces I never knew existed before. So that piqued me, piqued my interest. I was like, okay, this guy, you know, this is different. And then uh, in the lectures, it was pretty high-end university coaches uh, there. You know, to me, that was, you know, a lot of Big Ten schools and SEC schools. And, um, you know, I was looking around the room. And here I was in a D3 kid and only what I considered to be the top level minds in the room were even barely comprehending what Bonnerchuk was lecturing on. And I was following the logic. I didn't have the sports science knowledge, but I was following his 
logic of uh, theory, his logic of presentation. I understood what he was talking about, even though I didn't understand the information. And so I thought, well, he's giving me all this attention at the throw sessions, and then I'm actually able to pick up on what he is presenting on a little bit. Maybe I should investigate this a little further. So I went home and I, I, I got a job in a factory and I started saving my money and I knew I had to go to Kamloops to learn from Dr. Bonnichuk. I moved up there to learn about throwing and learn about coaching. I, uh, I only had maybe $3,000. I thought I could spend about three months up there. And my backup plan, if I ran out of money and had to leave Canada, was I had lined up to go uh, do the same type of thing with Mac Wilkins at Concordia. And to where uh, if I went moved south to Oregon, I would be able to get a job and at least sustain myself there. Uh, as things worked out, I ended up being able to stay in Canada for quite a few years. And I, didn't, I didn't end up going to my backup plan. Um, but that's, that's what took me up there in the first place. And then uh, as I every year I continued learning from Dr. Bonachuk, my training increased and I ended up growing into the elite athlete. Uh, how would you describe your uh, time up there the first year or two? Um, so little background on me. My first coach, legitimate coach, uh, was Dane Miller uh, at Garage Strength in Reading, Pennsylvania. And he was also up there, I think, a few months before you. Um, and he always talked to me about how special that training environment was. Um, I think he only left, I think he left a few months after you got there. But how would you describe entering that training environment, being a D3 athlete, working with, you know, Dylan Armstrong, um, several other former D1 guys, and, you know, what do you think made that training environment special in Kamloops that so many athletes revere to to this day from 10 years ago? The biggest thing was everyone had to leave home. There was only one person who was a hometown athlete, and that was Dylan. Everybody else moved from at least five hours away. Um some a lot more you know like dan and i crossed we crossed the continent uh, so you had people who wanted to be there and in those early days it was people who wanted to learn they weren't necessarily there to be the next olympian they were there to learn what bonderchuk had so there was a there was a really genuine uh relationship with every athlete and their training process um I think that you know most people when you move there, you you showed up and Dr. Bonachuk sat you down and he's like okay okay and you sat next to him and he grabbed a piece of paper and he asked you 20 questions about the training you had done before you got there, and that was it. And he said okay, and he said come back in the afternoon and you came back and he had your first program for you, and that was it. And then he started coaching you, and you didn't ask a question, mm -hmm. you just did what he said. And he did say yes or no. And it was, the environment was, you train twice a day and there was no question whether you were going to train 10 times a week or not. You were going to be there. And it didn't, um, you know, you had to rest, you had to eat, otherwise you couldn't get through the training. You know, if you didn't take care of your body, you would crash and you wouldn't even make it through a training session. And it was, it was so...
tough nails, um, you do the work or you go home environment that I'd never been in, but it was self-driven. Mm-hmm. Bonnerchuk didn't make anybody do it. Nobody was being paid to be there. Everybody was cutting their teeth. Everybody was scraping their pennies to just be a part of it. And it, uh, yeah, it was something more consuming than I'd ever been a part of. Uh, I, I spent the first five months in Kamloops napping on ice. I would go to training sessions and, uh, you know, an average training session would be 20 to 30 throws, and then you'd have five or six lifts of three to four sets each. You know, you do that at uh, 11 in the morning, and then you go home and you have lunch and a nap, and you come back that night at 5 p.m. and, and do it all over again. And I'd, I'd go home, and I would uh, had to put Vicks under my nose to relax, and I packed all of my joints and limbs in, in frozen vegetables every day. And napped, and then you go, you get up, and you go back, and you do it again. Wow. So, do you think that the environment of people willing to learn versus I want to be an Olympic athlete, I want to be a professional athlete in the beginning, kind of added to the mystique of that that training group? Yeah. It yeah. it it puts the root of success first. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, especially in today's culture, when you know information's at our fingertips, and you know you can uh, make an Instagram account with a viral video and get ten thousand followers within a few weeks, um, it uh, <laughs> it's it's really difficult for people sometimes to understand the core of focus, the core of success, and that is learning a task, that is mastery of a skill, and what you have to do first before you can have success. I can't think of a single account that would try to post other videos and try to gain some success off of that. (laughs) That's just crazy talk. (laughs) Um, No, but I I think that's really, that's that's vital, Um, because this kind of goes into something we want to transition into, is the post-collegiate athlete. The way that I think post-collegiate athletics is kind of uh, per- perceived by a lot of athletes when they're in college is you kind of have to reach a certain standard of performance and, and such to even consider continuing afterwards. You know, what do you think um, post-collegiate athletes should really expect when they're about to graduate and they still want to continue to pursue their track career because, like you said, you know, you were a Division three athlete. You know, you were a good one in Division three, but obviously the standard is quite a bit lower in comparison to Division one. You threw 18 meters one time, but you went on to throw 21 meters. What do you think post-collegiate athletes should expect, you know, and what, and what do you think uh, should determine if they should even continue uh, with, that, with that track career path? Well... Whether you're a high-level athlete or a lower-level athlete right after you graduate, two things are going to be true for the rest of your career. One is time, and two is loneliness. Uh, If you want to be a thrower, um, it's going to take either if you're a low-level athlete, it's going to be time until you develop into a top-level athlete, or if you're already a top-level athlete, you're probably going to be in this for a couple of years. So it's, it's going to be a while. It's not going to be flash in the pan. It's not going to be, okay, I'll do this for a couple of years. It's a, I'm going to commit to this for the next five, eight years. 
that's that's the focus you have to have in order to be successful. Uh, the other one is loneliness. Um, once, either when you're training, if you have to move, a, I, one of the things I tell athletes, if you want to, really want to be successful, you have to move away from family. You can't live in town where you have to go over to grandma's for birthday and have cake every weekend or go move your mom's dresser or, you know, you have to be selfish with your time. So it's much easier if you move away. Um, also, once you get into traveling, uh, there's a lot of time you're going you're gonna to be alone in the airports, alone in the hotels. There's going to be a track meets where you don't know anybody. Um, you know, when you're training in the off season, uh, you might be living alone. You might have times where your other training partners are traveling and you have to train alone for two to three weeks or it might just be you and your coach. Uh, so there's a lot of elements at play there and you have to be okay with that. If you're not a person who is okay with times of loneliness, you're going to struggle. Um, so that's two out the bat. Yeah. What was the, Oh no, that was the the leading edge of the, that was just, you know, what they should expect. That was pretty much what I was asking. Okay. Um, you know, what do you think? Cause you kind of went your whole career without a major sponsorship. You didn't have a shoe deal, correct? No, no, no. I had, I had, uh, initial discussion, um, in 2012, uh, with, a with a company, um, but they they determined uh, there would be no no cash payment outside of, of uh, you know a clothing contract, and so we uh, my agent and I said you know we're, we weren't interested. So what and you so you went on you were how long were you a professional thrower exactly? Well, yeah, that's a good point, Jason, because yeah. all of my athletes, um, particularly ones who are either after NCAA or are not competing in NCAA is, you know, if, if you're putting most of your time into this, you need to consider yourself a professional. You know, professionalism isn't determined by how much money you're gaining from the, the sport, particularly in throwing, because you're only going to make money if you're top 10 in the world. Uh, but there's a lot of people out there who are doing this professionally without the income. So what determines professionalism? It's how much you're putting into it how much focus of your life is going into it. And in my circumstance, uh, February, well, yeah, February 2008, as when I moved to Kamloops, everything was about throwing. Everything I bought at the store, everything I did during my day was geared toward, is this going to help me train better? Um, as I, I consider that was when I was a professional. So that would be 2008 to 2015. So seven years. That's a, that's an interesting take, and I think a lot of people might not even consider that professional until you do get that shoe deal. But you were still able to travel and get those professional meets in, despite yeah. not having those those deals. Mm-hmm. So I think that's important to know that you tried to make it work, and you basically did get it to work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and a lot of people do work. A, a lot of people do make it work. You know, until they get the deal, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's if you perform you get into competitions and that's that's the bottom line with our sport is uh um everyone every athlete who wants their shot um you're gonna you're gonna cut your teeth you're gonna bounce along you're gonna maybe nip the a standard a couple times here or there and then usually how it happens for athletes who are struggling and trying to get right rise to the ranks right is you're gonna get so somebody's gonna drop out of a meet at the last second and you're going to get a call from a friend or a coach or an agent and say, hey, there's an open spot in this meet. You want to do it. You have to say yes. And you have to go to that meet and you have to take names. You have yeah. to win. You have to place top three. And if you don't, 
you're going to sink back to the bottom. It's going to be another season before you get another shot. And so that's another thing. When you're coming up and you're bouncing on the bottom, you know, maybe, you know, uh, you know, just barely hitting A standard kind of level, you have to be ready to go. And when you get called up, you walk in. It doesn't matter who you're competing against. You have to dig down in your gut and make a statement because the people who get on the circuit are the people who win, the people who perform on demand. And if yeah. you can't do it, you're not going to make it. And do you think that's more of a mental thing or like a physical thing? Because um, I know, I think... When people kind of discuss, especially Dr. Bonerchuk's training, like, your body just reacts in so many different ways to programs. You know, how do you, how do you think you got that edge um, to be able to perform when you absolutely needed to? Mm-hmm. Like, at the, some of those professional meets. Well, the biggest one was Bonerchuk taught um, Armstrong and I uh, technique that wasn't being used at the time. Uh, 2008 to 2012, we were pretty much the only ones in the world using it, and that's the you know very rotational, um, very uh, bent leg final, um, which is now being used by the world's top throwers, and we're seeing results over 22 meters. Uh, you know, I, I've been watching the results this past year, and I thought I am so glad I competed with the technique I had when I did, because <laughs> if I was competing now, I wouldn't make it. Yeah. Right, but I, I had one of the best techniques and uh, Bonachuk's training it brought you to peak condition when you needed it um, there were times I would go compete and I'd throw 21 meters and then three or four days later at another meet I would throw 1950 1980 throwing hard yeah nothing changed it was just my my condition had changed um, so Bonachuk's training allowed me to get my body to absolute maximum peak condition where I, I could compete with the world's best, even though physically I really probably had no business being there. Now, I, I know you want to talk about this a little bit later, but yeah, physically I was maybe a little bit underrated, but mentally I was probably on the higher end of the card. And that's where I saw a lot of my success was the combination of of the really good technique and the, the genius of Bonacek's training and then the, the mental edge. So yeah, let's go back into the physical, the physical part of it. Um, you know, you obviously didn't have the highest results in college in comparison to other collegiates. But you went on to see lots of success. What do you think collegiates in general like? What attributes do you think constitute? You know what? I really love this sport. I think I can make it despite not having those twenty meter nineteen fifty throws in college by the age of 23, like, what do you think, you know, athletes can look at themselves and say, I only did throw 1750, but maybe there's a chance. Like, what what do you think can kind of, you know, you know, makes it feasible for, like, them to want to continue for at least a couple more years after graduating? Well, I'd say probably number one that would be uh, in, integral to them having success down the road is going to be the ability to get a result when you need it. Because you know, lower level athlete D three, whatever, we're gonna we're gonna assume that your training age and your training level is kind of low. Um, so you need to have had probably a couple moments where you weren't feeling very good or you were outclassed by your competition, but you still showed up and you still pulled off a spectacular result despite all the odds against you. And if you've done that a couple times in college, but you're a low level athlete, 
probably a good chance that you're going to be able to do that later on against some higher level athletes. Yeah. Um, another thing in terms of throwing is you need to have some fast twitch muscle. I'd say you know you probably should be pretty decent in your bounding in some jumping. Um, you know, sprinting not so much, but you know maybe uh, you know have the ability to have really fast releases. You know, not all the time, but you need to be able to. You have to be fast. Um, and beyond that, I can't really think of, you know, there's so many, you know, special cases where it could be this or that, but, um, you know, it's, like I said earlier, it's mostly the ability to want to work hard because nobody really knows what their top, where their ceiling's going to be. You know, your ceiling could be 19, it could be 20, it, it could be 22. Yeah. Nobody really knows until you put a, a couple of years in. Okay. No, that, that, that makes perfect sense. You know, what do you think, so obviously there are lots, you know, people that go on to be post-collegians like that, but what do you think makes the difference between those really top-level athletes and kind of like the people trying to break past almost a glass ceiling of that A standard? And we'll talk basically the mental side, because obviously there's the possibility of just absolute freaks in this world, incredible fast-switch fibers that, you know, you can't, almost science can't explain um, but what, as far as the mental edge, what do you think constitutes that main difference? Okay, well, you know, in, in you know, talking about freaks, yeah. freaks that make it that we talk about, there's just as many freaks that don't make it. Yeah. Because okay. of the, because of the, the mental side of it. Um, you, in order to get better at throwing, you have to take your body to forces, to produce forces that are unnatural. You know, not to use shot put specifically, you, know, you, you develop more power, you extract more power out of your body than any other event on the planet. Um, and that is a very traumatic thing to put yourself through in training. Very traumatic. And, and even more so when you understand those forces and you understand the eliteness of what you are training to do, right? Mm -hmm. Is you... You throw well, you could be the best in the world. You could be the best ever. And this puts a lot of pressure on a person's ability to adventure their souls. Okay, And I tell all of my athletes, you cannot be afraid to push the limits. Athletes who, even with physical talent, who fall by the wayside, they're the ones who fail to push their bodies beyond the safe zone push their bodies beyond what they already know. Um, I've seen countless, well, I shouldn't say countless, but quite a few examples of athletes who start a training regime and they go for a year or two or three or four, and all of a sudden, everything's going good, going fine, and then all of a sudden, one day, it all stops. And they just flatten out. They can't get better. They can't get better. They can't get better. And it's nothing physical. It's their mental, it's their mental side of not, allowing themselves to break barriers, to move faster, to sit lower, to work harder. Um, there's a, I want to say carefree, but a, it's a, you have to be, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, you can't the, be lack, lackadaisical? No, you, you have to throw yourself in the, into the sun, so to speak. Okay. You, you have to go blindly into into the training um, and be willing to fail, willing to break your body 
in order to grow and get to those big forces that create big throws. So that's actually something um, you, you brought up. I've, I've always found an interesting topic when it came to um, really getting involved with athletics at, from the athlete side. Do you think that there's a point where the athlete has to learn to be dumb um, in order to, you know, and en- en- rapture themselves in the training and in order to grow where they can't be too analytical and focus too much on what they're doing and they kind of have to just yeah. focus on what has to be done, go with the flow, <laughs> but not analyze the training? Yeah, I, I think th- there is some truth in that statement. It, it, you have to be careful about thinking about how you frame how you frame the question or frame the statement about that, but you know it's 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 not a it's not a secret that some of the world's best athletes are not exactly the the brightest uh, intellectually or at least um, you know in, in classroom book type type yeah. studies, right? Certainly they're brilliant with their bodies and you know good good business people and good travelers, and, but um, there is a there is a certain level of aloofness. When it comes to their training, uh, I I think you bring up a good point. I often forget about this about myself, but I I was a good double blind study on myself because I there were a couple of years uh, when Bonnerchuk and I walked separate ways where I, I coached myself mostly, and I would have to sit down and write my training, and I would I knew where I was at in my programming, and I knew what I get up in the morning, have my coffee, look at the chart, and say, "Okay, this is what you know I should probably expect today." And but by the time I got to the track, by the time I was warming up, I was completely blank, and I was one hundred percent athlete mode, and I completely forgot about the training and the chart and where I was supposed to be, what I was supposed to have, and I only worked hard for that training session. And then all of a sudden, I, I might throw well. It's like, oh, oh, that that was pretty good result and I'd measure and go and then I'd get home and go oh well yeah of course of course that was supposed to happen <laughs> you know or you know we would do sometimes uh, training schedules where you, you go three days on one day off three days on one day off you do that for six six seven weeks you start to lose your sense of, of time and, and, and space and you just show up and you just do the training and uh, there'd be days where I felt really good but didn't throw as far or days where I felt like crap and I threw really far and it was like, oh, how'd that happen? And I look at the chart, and it's like, oh, that's why, you know. And um, it's yeah, I think there is something to be said of of um, tuning out everything you know about throwing or know about yourself and know about the sport, and just do the work, do the training. You know, I think that ties in a little bit with what we were talking about earlier of you know not not being afraid, not being afraid, yeah. of, and not not paying attention to your limits, so to speak. So, how was that transition like, leaving Dr. B, going out on your own, and eventually um, going into coaching full-time? Like, that was about a two-year period that, that was going on? Yeah, yeah, the two-year period, because it was September September 2013 that uh, he decided he wasn't going to be my coach anymore, um, and, and then uh, April 2015 was when I uh, officially retired. So initially, um, the timing of of finding myself without a coach was really hard because I was in the I was in the middle of a severe um, a severe injury with super high intensity uh, recovery, and I had to come up with a training plan for the next year. Of course, by September it's already late in the year. You know, I was I was anticipating that Bonachuk had already laid all that out, and so that was an incredibly stressful time to. Uh, to seek out, you know, 
first of all, get myself set up for the next couple months with my training and then to seek out somebody to find me, to help me, you know, because I, I knew that, you know, every elite athlete, you need a coach. You need somebody to be responsible to. You need somebody to think about the things that you don't shouldn't be thinking about as an athlete. Um, and so that started a, a coach searching process uh, of which I eventually settled on uh, Sean Denard, who is the throws coach at Grand Valley State University. We ended up being a tremendous uh, resource uh, in, in those years for me. And I, I remember I, I got a little bit of flack for, for settling on Sean Denard as my coach but at that time, but I, I think I I think I picked really well on him. He's, he's really turning into a fantastic coach. Was that just because of his age or that you worked with him before as your own athlete? I think it was mostly his age because he was a year or two out of his bachelor's degree. He was in his grad grad assistant in North Central at the time. Um, but I think part of it too was he he was a Division three athlete and a Division three coach at the time. Mm-hmm. So people said, you know, well, why are you going to go work with somebody who's always been in Division three instead of going with somebody who's Division one or already a professional elite coach? Yeah. So I think that was part of the flack too. Okay. So how 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 what made that decision? What went through your head to say I'm done? You know. I've had a good career. It's time to move on, and uh, I'm going to transition to coaching full time. I think at this time you were working with Taryn Suddy, mm-hmm. who was uh, your first uh, Olympian. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, currently the only Olympian that you've coached so far. Right. Yeah. Uh, well, when I got injured in 2013, uh, I got injured. I, I tore partially tore my adductor in my left leg, and they determined about 50% of the total ligament attachment came off. It's about one and a half centimeters worth. Um, it's pretty pretty intense injury. That happened five weeks before I set my lifetime PR, which is 21-29. Uh, and at that point, I was ranked third in the world all season until World Championships where I didn't compete and I dropped to sixth in the world. So, you know, I had achieved this level that I never thought was going to be possible, and now I had to come back from, from this injury. So my, my, first, my first thought process was get healthy, come back, and... and you know, let's get back, get back up there. Uh, it took me a year and a half, a year and a half to get my elite level condition back. I was throwing 25 plus with the 5K, throwing 23 plus with the 6K. I had thrown 21 meters in training with the seven. Uh, I was not able to replicate in competition. I think I only threw 2020 or 2019 in competition after the injury. Um, but I had really good nine. I couldn't throw the 10K after my injury. But okay. I had really good. I all of my marks were within I think 30 centimeters of my lifetime best with all the weights in February of 2015. And when I hit that, I it was kind of it was a moment for me of I did it. Um, I wrote my own periodization to get there. And so I thought, you know, I, I think I got a grasp on how to do my how to do this training. I pushed myself back to this level, which was not an easy journey. That was yeah. a really hard two years. Uh, and then at that same point, uh, the funding the funding I have with Canada, uh, they in the next uh, application process they didn't they didn't approve my application. So uh, I think. Uh, because of the numbers, if I had continued training, I was going to be looking at uh, $70,000 in the red uh, if I continued the season. And 
something about achieving that success, growing back to that world-class level for myself, doing all on my own, that was enough for me. And um, some, somewhere in that process, uh, one day I woke up and I didn't have the special energy in my body anymore. You know, and I, it was so hard, so, so hard for me to train and be at that level for those five years I was up there um, that it just kind of left my body, you know, and I took three days off and all over those three days I felt like a tingling sensation throughout my entire body and it, it literally, it felt like energy was leaving me <laughs> and I got to the, I, I, I never had that before and I'd never not wanted to go to training. I had day, you know, I was tired, blah, 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 whatever, but I, I didn't want to go to the track. This, this happened over three days. And then I finally got to the, the third day and I said, I have to go train. Otherwise, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose my condition. And I got to the track and I picked up the shot put and it felt like it weighed a million pounds. And I, I knew that the special energy in my body to fight against the shot put, to fight against the loneliness, to, you know, to, to, to grind was gone. And because I started my career going to Canada in pursuit of knowledge, um, I was okay with being done because everything I achieved after 2008 was all bonus. It was all yeah. ice cream. You know, yeah. I was there to learn from Dr. Bonnerchuk, and what I did as an athlete was all bonus time. So when when my, you know, I I feel like I really learned as much as I was going to learn, um, and when that happened, you know, the athlete side was done. That makes sense, and and now you've kind of, you kind of took what you've learned as an athlete and your time up in Canada. And now you've opened up your own coaching business, Rudy Sport. Mm -hmm. um, but what I'm not sure how many people know this. You actually during that time, uh, you actually went on to be a, a coach in the NCAA, but you have since left the NCAA. Mm -hmm. um, do you see yourself going back uh, at all? Yeah. I, um, down the road, perhaps. Uh, right now, I'm I'm trying to I want to grow my my brand. I want to grow my business a little bit more, and uh, I'm I'm the main caretaker during the day, the weekdays for my my son, ten months old, and that's that's really important for me right now. You know, I've I've met with uh, one thing I always thought about as uh, in terms of coaching was so many coaches spend so much time away from their families. Yeah, and I I've seen it countless times and it just breaks my heart and you know i'm you know I, i'm in a position where it's okay to spend this time with my family now and you know that that's the focus for me for me now um uh ncaa down the road yeah absolutely um but it it all depends on the situation you know not not every school is is equal um you know there's there, there's some things in the NCAA, in the ncaa that i like to see change uh, you know, I, you know, I, I think a lot of the coaches are being overworked in the NCAA, especially in the lower levels. Um, you know, to be frank, a lot of people are being taken advantage of it's, mm. it's, uh, the hours and the job hats that a lot of coaches are being asked to, to perform. It's, it, it's, it's probably too much and you're probably, they're watering down the experience for the student athletes. You know, I don't think they're getting the best the coaching or coaching attention. Um, so, uh, you know, that's that's uh, that's something in terms of me down the road with the NCAA would be. So, um, 
you, you're kind of talking about that burnout rate and um, yeah, burnout rate with yeah. We, we see yeah. a lot of you see a high turnover with a lot of the NCAA coaches either either coaches in and out the door and and not continuing or coaches you know they're, they're they're jumping ship and going from school to school to school to school and it's become this culture where you know you you're gonna get in at a low level school go for a year or two and then you're gonna go to another school and and on and on and on until you get your big elite you know yeah. uh division one job and it uh you know certainly there's has to be you know an entry point and a and a higher point where you establish your career but part of that turnover rate is is coaches being overworked you know? yeah and when you discuss like the many hats it's like it's not just the coaching side of it it's yeah. um also recruiting right and how would you describe like that whole system of recruiting the the recruiting certainly technology has made that a lot more a lot easier you can send blanket emails you know and um you know stuff like that and, and you know they, they, they all opened up text messaging which is you know makes things a lot easier but uh the the caseload the caseload to to train athletes write periodization um schedule your competitions set up your home meets get people in place to run your home meets run your equipment maintain your equipment uh scheduling within the facility and other sports within the campus uh, all of all of these things I, I think it's 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 watering down the position to where coaches are not you're not able to put your best focus in any one place now some schools they're implementing more positions right like yeah. we, we have uh, um, the name of the position is leaving me right now but we have like the travel coordinators. At some of the bigger schools, you know, oh, that's yeah. all they do. That's all they do. And some schools are implementing, uh, you know, a person to take on the lead of recruiting. You know, they handle most of the recruiting contacts when the kids get on campus, and the coaches, you know, take them around. And so that that's it's we're starting to see some of that. Yeah. But a lot of these positions, they're undervalued. They're mm-hmm. underpaid. Um, and and it's not the hours. Yeah. And that's the big thing is the hours required to to spend with your time. Spend your time. At the circle with your athletes in the weight room, coaching, uh, well, recruiting on your own time, you know, at home, and then your competitions on the weekends, and then if you have to travel for recruiting in the off season, the hours are nowhere near what is uh, compensated in pay. Yeah, and it's you know I I don't I'm not sure if it's a sustainable model. I think I think something's going to have to change mm-hmm. in order to have continued quality experiences for the student athletes. Yeah, and and, and that's what I was about to get into is you, you said especially the student athletes. Um, I can say you know with my with my time uh, because y- you were the coach at the university Meyer and I both go to, and unfortunately because it's a very small school, there's only about um, two thousand students total that attend the school. It's a very small private school. It, we've had new throws coaches every single season. And with something like that, if you have athletes that really do care and want to get better, that has, has to be really hard on athletes unable to keep that consistency because every coach might have a different training model and different way they want to peak, and then that has to, that has to mess with the athletes' bodies and especially their minds having to get so many different cues and so many different ways to train in only a four-year period. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and you know, 
in, in, in some cases, that's just the reality. You know, yeah. like I said, you know, you have to have entry points and and you know top level points, but you know it it's 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 kind of the the cat and mouse game a little bit of the NCAA in sports is you know my myself I made a lot of my decision to go to Mount Union based on a football coach that was there. Uh, now I ended up quitting three days into my summer camp as a football player, oh. and that coach left after a year. Yeah, uh, th- that coach he had been there for twenty five years. Or, or 19 years. He'd been there for a long time. You didn't think he was going to leave, and he did. That's a bit of a crapshoot. So, it, it, yeah, that's just kind of the nature in NCAA is it, you know, um, as much as a student athlete can pick one school over any other for any reason, and coaches can leave or, you know, or, you know, coaches, they might not just be going from one school to another. They might be changing careers. They might yeah. just they might just be leaving coaching. You know, we, yeah. we saw that a couple of years ago with uh, some coaches, and it, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's just, it's just part of the part of the nature. But you know, it, it's it's the responsibility of the institution to create a stable environment for which the students to grow, yeah, you know, student athletes to grow, and it's also, you know, it's the students' responsibility to pick a school that is going to be where they can be successful at, no matter what happens at the campus, right? Yeah. There's a lot of reasons to pick schools. One of them is not just because of what coach is there or what the athletics are like because there's so much more ingrained into your college experience. So it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's a balance between those two. How much do you think that, how, how much do you think it could negatively affect an athlete having to hop between coaches every year or two? Like, do you, like, do you think it's really that big of a deal or do you think, um, like, most athletes like it's something that you can deal with well to to really get results out of any training system uh you need to put in a year to two years that's kind of the, the standard you know people say you need to, to learn something you need to do it ten thousand times two thousand five thousand ten thousand times for athletic training it, it's one to two years is really how much time you need to really develop and learn and grow in a system so yeah if you're having if you're having turnover every season and especially if that turnover is uh, dramatic change then yeah you're, you're going to have some some struggles uh, as an athlete growing so going along with the coaching something i like about where you know post-collegiate post-collegiate track and field is going especially in the throws there seems to be a lot of different training groups are popping up around the u.s like mm-hmm. individual training groups mm-hmm. you have your you have yourself roadie sport um to call out some names we, there's garage strength obviously in pennsylvania uh there's uh Arite, which is run by eric johnson out um in california arizona do you think um this whole like uh, amalgamation of these different training groups and satellite groups that are popping up around the country do you think it's better for the sport and less people having to stay in like the collegiate system post-collegiate with their collegiate coach do you think uh what, what's your take on these new forms of professional coaching going on around the u.s right now well, more opportunity is always going to generate better results. You know, yeah, that's that's the that's the nature of free market. Yeah. Um, so I I absolutely am big proponent for people individualizing and privatizing their training career, especially post collegiately, because now you are a professional. Yeah. Whether you want to admit it or not, if you are focusing your entire life. All your finances, all your relationships, all your free time on trying to throw further, you're a professional. Um, and so part of that being a professional is seeking out 
the environment, the people, the coach, the system where you can be the most successful. And what's really nice about having multiple groups doing this is it provides uh, some uh, variety and you know so that you can find you have a better shot of finding the home that's good for you the, okay. the place that's going to best fit you the philosophy that's going to best fit you also with these groups what i really like to see is you you have grassroots all the way through elite yeah. with these groups that's something that you're not really getting in the ncaa model you know if you if you train it at a school you're going with you know 18 year olds up to I don't know, 30 32 year olds right at the top end of the sport um, and then, but if you take that training environment and go to you know a, a local club, so yeah. For example, you've 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 got ten year olds, twelve year olds training right next to Olympians, and that I think that is the future of really instilling good training culture for the generations to come. You know, if we don't want to lose the sport of throwing, if we don't, if we want to really influence the young athletes coming up it's it it doesn't matter how many posters are placarded around the town of you it it matters you know how much are you around younger athletes every day so you think we're making good step forward uh as a country like with these different training groups yeah i think the 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 more privatization uh more club opportunities uh is is a tremendous uh step forward um, I would like to see a little bit more uh, um, uh, coming together of, of coaches and systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, there still seems to be a little bit of, uh, you know, I want to keep some, some of these things secret. And we're not going to work with other people. Um, would you like to see that come together a little bit more? Um, but, yeah. Uh, something that you've been kind of an advocate for that since I've known you, and you were kind of one of the – noticeable figures at this meet was the uh, University of Kansas in Lawrence, Lawrence, Kansas. They have the their downtown shot meet every year. It's a yeah. big event. Um, you were kind of one of the staples of that event in its early years. Yeah, I, you pretty much, you hit a lot of your big throws there, correct? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, what do you think, do you think that's the future of where the sport needs to go is more events like that? Yeah, I think, well, at least in order to kind of regrow the popularity of track and field is people are not going to come to a stadium to watch track. It, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let's face it, even at the, Olymp- at the Olympics, even, unless you're a track geek, the show is not that fun. Yeah. It, it's not that fun to watch these people on the field in a big stadium. What's fun about that is the environment and the people in the stadium. Yeah. So... You know, given that, uh, you know, the way to grow the sport is not to have bigger events. It's to take take the events to the people. And that's what, you know, um, they're starting to do road sprints, you know, setting up sprints in downtown straightaways. And we're doing long jump and pole vault, you know, pole vaults in, in malls. Yeah, they do, they do have a pole vault on the beach in New Jersey every beach, year. Beach, right. Yeah. And you're doing, uh, you know, shot in the train station in Zurich and, you know, taking some of the smaller events to the people. And I think that's where you're going to regrow your fan base because a lot of people, they don't understand how special track and field athletes are. They don't understand how fast or how strong, how powerful. And when you when you let people come within 5, 10 feet of the elite athletes, they get it. They understand yeah. it. It makes a huge impact. You know, the, the, the Lawrence Street Shot, I can't tell you. I, I went there 
three years, three, yeah, three years, and um, four years. Uh, yeah, 20, two, four years. 2012 to 2015. Yeah, and yeah. I can't tell you how many kids' faces were completely focused, zeroed in when they're, they're, they're 10 feet off the gate and the chalk is flying in the crowd. <laughs> and they can feel the yells coming yeah. from the throwers. Um, and it, it's huge, huge impression made on them from a young age. And that that is how we're going to grow the sport more. You know, And I, I like to see... Uh, it would take a little bit of off-season training. A lot, a lot of people don't want to compete unless they're in top shape, and a lot of that comes from the uh, pressure from their contract, contracted uh, agents to, you know, we only want you to show when you're in good shape. And But um, I would like to see we do some tra- uh, track events at pre-games for NFL games or, you know, some, oh. some big big college uh, you know, football games, basketball games, uh, you know, out in the parking lots, set up events out there, get out and get to know people and, and, and you know, and, and take the events out outside of the track, maybe even outside of the season. I know the um, the North American Track Series. Yeah, yeah, the uh, tra- uh, Track Town Summer Series. Yeah, yeah, Track Town Summer. Um, it's, it's a good start. It's a good effort, but I think they're still doing it. It's still too much track. Yeah, I think they they need to, you know, maybe break it down even more at least early on, right? Kind of section off the field events into their own mm-hmm. own events. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, that, that that sounds like a great idea. Um, and I can say that I I was at the Lawrence Track Town of uh, Lawrence Downtown Shot event one year when you were competing. Uh, I believe that was 2014, and I agree with you in that when you're watching. There's probably two to three thousand people in that crowd, mm-hmm. all having a good time, drinking beer um, with friends and family, and it's amazing how simple, like how simple the sport is, and how easy it is to come across to a crowd that's never seen it before. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm willing to bet that probably maybe a third, possibly two thirds of that crowd have probably never seen shot put. You know, and they're just walking downtown Lawrence. They're enjoying a time, but you see this great big event. It's amazing how people just suddenly are amazed by the athletic feats you guys were able to do without having any idea who you guys are. But then, on an event like that, you you now have fans that are going to come back the next year, and mm-hmm. now you're developing lifelong fans by doing events like that. And I think that's important, and that's what we're trying to do with this podcast: it is try to get some of these athletes, their personalities out there, you know, mm-hmm. give them a platform to speak their mind and, you know, let people understand who they are and, you know, what they're trying to do as athletes and what personalities they, they can put forward when they're competing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing we kind of want to go into a bit is uh, you were talking about, we were talking about the different satellite groups, the training groups that have been around, uh, are going uh, popping up the U.S. now. And how you think more information has to be spread around the two. Well, that's kind of what you've gone in with Dane Miller. And as you've previously, sp- previously spoken about your old coach, Sean Denard, mm-hmm. uh, you know, every year in Grand Va- at Grand Valley. Um, and you guys host this, um, the big throws clinic. And I believe we're going into, going into its third year. Mm-hmm. And why don't you talk about how that's been growing uh, with you guys working together. Okay. Well, I guess it kind of it all starts um, back at Mount Union, really, because we have four four main guys, and three of us came came out of Mount Union. 
Uh, see, I graduated. I was his, I left the year that Sean was a freshman. And Sean Denard. Sean right? Denard. Right? Yeah. yeah, we got to differentiate that. <laughs> yeah, <thing. laughs> a little two Sean D's. Yeah. So Sean Denard asked me to coach him for the last two or three years of his collegiate career. So I did that uh, uh, online from Canada, and then I did a couple training camps uh, back at Mount when he was a senior and Sean Donnelly was a freshman. Mm -hmm. And so I, I coached and worked with Sean Donnelly a couple times as a freshman. I gave him some training for a year or so while he was at Mount. Uh, of course, Dane Miller and I were in Camelots together for a couple months. And then, uh, you know, Dane moved to Pennsylvania in Garage Strength. Uh, Dane's company actually ended up being one of my more consistent sponsors I had at the end of my career. I, I, I threw with a Garage Strength jersey. Um, and so, and then of course I asked Sean Denard to be, be my coach and then Sean Donnelly ended up becoming a division one athlete and yeah. now a great thrower for the U S and the hammer throw. Um, so that's kind of the background of how all of us came together. Uh, and then, you know, Sean is at Grand Valley and they have a tremendous facilities and, you know, uh, that's that coaching staff let Sean, do what he needs to do to create a high performance culture at that school and this clinic is part of that and uh the first year it was let's let's do some classroom lectures and let's have people throw you know let's let's do a clinic that is different than anything else has been done before and we started off with that and then uh last year we incorporated the uh, U.S. Indoor Discus Championships. We had uh, some elite athletes coming in, so the high school, the clinic attendees could watch them compete, uh, be right in the, in the mix with them. We also, I think, they did uh, the the high school discus competition, you know, indoors. And um, now this year we're going even even bigger. Uh, of course, you have your classroom lectures, but we're incorporating uh, a three section weight room lecture as well, where each of the presenters, uh, Sean Donnelly, uh, Dane Miller, and myself are all going to give a different point of view, a different method for structuring uh, a strength program for a 12-week high, uh, high school season. Mm -hmm. That's a big a big addition this year. Uh, they're also going to be doing an indoor whammer event, which is the combination between a, a weight and a hammer. I, I think they're expected to go... 30 meters, yeah, give or take. Yeah, like 30 to 35 meters. 30 to 35 meters distance on these things. Uh, so that's going to be new. Also, the addition of a lot more elite athletes, a lot more professional athletes are going to be in attendance this year. Uh, quite a few throwers have moved to Grand Valley for their own training. Uh, well, those are going to be an over-under weight shot put competition where people can <sighs> throw with uh, shot put gloves uh, if they want. Um, that, was a, that was a nice event we had last year. Um, and so it's, it is, it is a place where high school athletes can come to, you're not going to be lectured at all day yeah. and you're not going to be sat in a chair in a dark room and you're not going to be put in a gym with a hundred kids and just drill all day. You know, when yeah. I was in high school, I went to a clinic, uh, the, the school remained nameless, but they put 90 kids in a gym on a rainy day and they had us drill down the basketball lines. All day for six hours, and it yep. cost me a hundred bucks. It was crazy. Yeah, it's it's, it's a joke. Um, you know, Grand Valley. It's you have three like three classroom lectures, two throwing sessions, 
meet and greet, sponsor tables, elite athletes, elite coaches. It's it's an amazing uh, combination of, of everything that you would need to get more information or have a tremendous experience and inspiration as, as, a, as a high school athlete, college athlete, um, you know, high school, college coaches. Yeah, well, I think adds to the atmosphere is not only is, is it the education, but similar to the downtown shot, it's it's just a fun event. Mm-hmm. You know, getting to watch all different throwing events and letting the athletes come out and just be themselves. It, it, it's low-key. Like, it's not... There isn't too much stress on anyone. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, that allows for an interesting atmosphere where everybody can just have a great time and really explode. And, and, and I think that leads to some big throws, some big performances uh, from these athletes because... You do get that loose atmosphere, but an atmosphere that pushes you to be better mm-hmm. and, and memorable. Memorable, memorable. Yeah. You know, you know. Last year, it, it's it's in the it's technically in the off season, right before Christmas. Um, everyone's you know, at college and high school. They just came off a big semester, mm-hmm. and you know, in the discus competition, when pe- people were throwing in ugly Christmas sweaters and Christmas hats that lit up, and you know, it's yeah. it's it's that kind of environment and the, the the facilities at Grand Valley are, are are tremendous you know the field house is huge it's well taken care of lots of space um, Sean Denard puts on a one one great event uh, it's it, it really is it, it's the place to be I you know if you can if you're have the means to get there I, I would definitely want to be there well uh, Justin we're about to wrap up here um, where can people find you where can where can people seek out Justin Rohde? Uh, well, the webpage is roadysport.com. That That's our home base. That's where we have most of the information people can have on, on training with us and the products that we offer. Um, you know, of course, the chop up glove. And we have uh, wrist supports and, and lifting straps. Uh, we also provide video analysis. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't post the video analysis that we do uh, to be public. We keep them private with our clients uh, to, to try and keep uh, the information for them you know, uh, cutting edge and uh, help help that athlete to get an edge over their competition. Um, we also, we're, we're on Instagram, Twitter, yeah. you know, Rory Sport handles. And uh, one thing I just want to mention is something you kind of added to your product line, which I think was super cool when you did it, was you partnered with Chic on your, on your, wrist wraps mm-hmm. specifically for shot put can you talk yeah. about those yeah well, yeah I've, I've worked with them for quite a few years and we've, we've done some some product testing and they've, they've been really good to work with uh we have um i i can't say it's the only on the on the market but it is i think it's the best performing uh wrist wrap for throwers on the market it's it's a blocking wrist wrap we've gone through a couple different Buckle combinations and uh, padding. We just implemented a, uh, a double wide strap this year, um, this, so it goes up halfway up your forearm. So to, to hopefully eliminate the need for tape for a lot of throwers. You know, if you don't have money to buy a lot of tape, you can you can get that. Um, they're they're high end straps. They last about a year typically for most people. Um, World class throwers use them. All over the world, major championships, Olympics, world championships. You know, we have, um, you know, the, the the wrist wrap model's been used by Olympic champions, and it's it's it really is a, a high end item. If if you're a thrower, it's probably a must have. 
Now you got your logo on it too. Yeah, we. Yeah, that is that, that what you're trying to get at? Yeah. Well, I mean, no, because obviously the uh, design choices that you came up with are incredibly interesting. But what mm. I do, what I think is great, is now people actually can get the official uh, shot put strap with the Roadie Sport logo right, on it. Right, and that was we had we have our logo on the shot put glove, but you can't use that in competition. So now yeah. the wrist strap you get with it has the Roadie Sport logo. On it, right? So now, now people can, now people can uh, rep rope roadie sport in the competition arena. Well, Justin, I want to thank you for having you on today. You, uh, this was a great interview. I hope uh, everyone got something out of it um, between your career and what you're doing right now, and mm-hmm. you know the clinic that you guys that's coming up in about two months. What date do you, yeah. is that clinic coming up? It's December 16, 17, mm-hmm. or yeah, sixteen, seventeen. Um, and and Grand Valley or Grand Rapids, Michigan. Uh, specifically, it's Allendale, uh, where where the campus is. Um, and registration is, is open right now. Uh, information for that can be found on uh, Throws Chat webpage, also the Rory Sport blog, and you can go directly to Grand Valley GVSU uh, to their their webpage for registration. Uh, there, there's multiple sections to register for, so you can register for the clinic. For the competitions, you can register for the weight room seminar. You can do it all separate. You can do it all as a package. Uh, we're also offering uh, pre uh, the biggest Rody Sports sale in his company history. If you order product at registration time, you can pick it up at the clinic. Uh, big discounts on that. And then also, if you uh, when you register, there's a, a place where you can put in a, a referral code. And if you plug in Rody Sport as your referral code, we're going to give everybody a free four-week special strength program for shot put discus throwers um, so it'd be things like uh, dumbbell throws and bowling pins and things that are out of the box outside the weight room or maybe different exercises that you can do in the weight room to not just be generally strong but throwing strong excellent well we're excited to see what you do in the future thank yeah. you justin thank you jason